When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess. For elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Hello. We are Audio Judo, your podcast of music discovery. Proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, mm-hmm. your premier source of music podcasts. These next two episodes, uh, you will notice that we're focused on the same general time frame, 87, 88. Yeah. Uh, nearly the same genre, hard rock to metal. And in fact, the two bands that we're going to talk about performed on the same ticket around this time. Oh. And you might be wondering to yourself... I want to hear more about the Alan Parsons Project album. Or maybe you want to hear about a Radiohead album. Or a Beatles record, even. Uh, Well, there is a way you can guarantee that is exactly what happens. You could sign up for our Patreon account. You can indeed. Kyle, how would they do that? So if you go to uh, audiojudo.com and click on our Patreon link, you can get there. Uh, We have two tiers. The tier Matthew was talking about is called the Backstage Pass tier. It is $20 a month, but you get uh, all kinds of stuff that I'm going to tell you about in just a second. Plus... Uh, after one year of subscribing to that tier, uh, you get to tell us, uh, you get to make an episode with us. Basically, uh, we will do it on whatever album you pick. Uh, you're welcome to join in, or if you don't feel comfortable doing that, you don't have to do that as well. You will also get a special, uh, custom gift. It's hard to do this without this right in front of me. <laughs> That's okay. You're winging it. You're you'll doing, also get a, you're doing uh, just great. You'll also get a, a special custom gift that Matthew and I will uh, sign for you. Uh, they're pretty cool. We've given out two or three of them so far. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a, if you really want to make us uh, have to listen to the uh, Barney and Friends uh, album from 1993 or whenever that came out, you can do that. I was hoping we were going to do like the Wiggles or something. Maybe oh, that'd be fruit great. salad. Yeah. Yummy, yummy. Uh, 
on top of that, maybe you don't uh, maybe you don't want to go that far, but you would like a little bit more audio judo content. We do have another tier. Uh, it's called the front row seats tier. It's five dollars a month. Uh, you get for that, you get uh, some little bonus episodes that we call judo chops. Those come out in between all of our regular episodes, um, and they're usually just focused on one little short subject, uh, but they're a lot of fun. Uh, you also get early access, two days early access to all of the existing audio judo episodes, or all of the new audio judo episodes, I should say. And occasionally you'll get some little uh, behind the scenes bits. Uh, a lot of that is stuff that we cut out of episodes because it was either uh, too long winded or we were passing too much wind in the background. Too long winded. Winded? What do you? Oh, yeah. There you go. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's uh, that's the Patreon. Oh, and uh, the uh, the the backstage past here also gets access to all the uh, front row seat tier stuff as well. Correct. I don't think I said that. That's okay. I feel uh, like that was long winded, so we might need to cut all of that out. No, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> uh, so, like I mentioned, uh, we're talking about a record released in 1988, firmly in the hair metal time period. Mm-hmm. And while the band certainly dabbled in hair metal. Earlier in their career, this album was not that, necessarily. Uh, We are talking about the heavy metal concept record, Operation Mind Crime, by the Seattle-based rockers Queensryche. Uh, Kyle, what was your uh, familiarity with this record going into this episode? Honestly, as a whole, I don't think I've ever heard this record before. Really? Any of it? I I, I mean, I've heard, um, why can't I think of the song now? Uh, Eyes of a Stranger? Yeah. Um, and I've heard little bits and pieces of this record before. Okay. I had never, I didn't even realize it was until we started listening. I, so I listened to it the first time and started doing research. I had no idea this was like a concept album. And then I was like, oh, okay. This is one long narrative. It's like a story. Oh yeah. It actually reminds me a lot of, um, uh, Repo, the rock opera that was written in the early 2000s ish about, uh, it's set in a dystopian future where they, repossess people's organs if they don't pay for them who made that uh i don't know (laughs) it was written it was written i believe that was written as a stage play first Uh um, and then sort of turned into it it was written as a a rock opera stage play first and then turned into okay and honestly i don't know a whole lot about it but the music stylings and everything obviously took a lot from this oh and when you listen to them you can really tell like oh yeah i can see why they were definitely inspired by this interesting what'd you call what was it called it's called repo Okay. Our Repo Man. I'll have to look it up. I'm sorry. I, I don't know off the top of I'll my head. That just blew out of my mouth right there. But that's okay. Honestly, though, I'd never heard it in its entirety before. I was a little familiar with Queensryche. Mm-hmm. They always sort of felt to me like they were a a band that didn't have that middle ground of fans. Mm. And by that, I mean most bands have have you can split their fans up into three tiers. There's the people who are like, oh, I remember that one song that they had that was popular. Uh, and then there's the middle ground people who are like, oh, I know a little bit more about them. I'm familiar with some of their albums. Mm-hmm. I can name m- multiple songs that wouldn't have been popular. And then you have the really fanatical fans who are like, I own all of their albums. I can name every single album. I can tell you, you know, where they were on concert, given a date, you know, stuff like that. I feel like Queensryche doesn't have that middle ground. Right. I believe that they're similar to Rush in that kind of respect. Yes, exactly. I was, in fact, I was about to say they're a lot like Rush. They're, they don't have that middle ground of fans. They have people who have heard all the popular songs. Right. And then they have people that are absolutely fanatical. I love Queensryche. And if you're not in those two camps, it kind of evades you. Yeah. Yeah. I love this record. Always have. I use the term heavy metal a little loosely because I think this album straddles the line between metal and hard rock. Uh, it is nowhere near Metallica at this period, which I think we can all agree is heavy metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is, is Motley Crue heavy metal? Is Guns N' Roses heavy metal? 
is white snake heavy metal i think no no and no uh this band was placed alongside those other bands and my feeling is uh they are definitely a harder sounding band than those mm-hmm. uh, but they aren't a metal band in the pure sense but I think those are all kind of semantics because whatever they are, this is their masterpiece. I would agree. Uh, and it is perhaps one of the greatest concept records of all time. Before we talk about Operation Mindcrime, uh, we should talk about the band in question. Yeah. Queensryche. So the band was formed in the Bellevue, Washington area with four of the f- original five members in a band called Crossfire. Uh, this our incarnation of the band uh, was formed in the late 70s with uh, Scott Rockenfield on drums, Michael Wilton on guitar, Chris Garmo on guitar and Eddie Jackson on bass. Do you have something? I was just going to say, is it actually pronounced crossfire? Is it, is it pronounced cross plus fire? I don't Because <laughs> it's spelled cross, cross and then the plus, plus symbol, sign, right? And then fire. So uh, I didn't know. I would say, I would personally say crossfire as well. Cross, cross plus fire just seems like cross a mouthful. Cross plus fire. Um, cross and fire. Cross and fire. Maybe that's cross and cross fire. Cross and fire. Huh. Uh, once Eddie Jackson joined the band, uh, they changed their name to The Mob after the Black Sabbath song The Mob Rules and commenced to banging out songs in Rockenfield's uh, garage. In 1980, they were in need of a vocalist for a one-off performance, and they recruited singer Jeff Tate, who at the time was the singer for another local band called Babylon. Uh, when Babylon broke up, he joined The Mob, but then left after a few performances, because he didn't want to perform just heavy metal covers. That's fair enough. Yeah. In 81, uh, they had scraped enough money together to record a demo tape, but they still didn't have a singer. So again, they recruited Tate, who by this time had joined another local band called Myth, and he recorded with the mob, much to the chagrin of Myth. Yeah, apparently they were pissed. They were really pissed. (laughs) But this would become a habit for Tate, who, as we will see... Uh, had trouble staying inside the lines of a band (laughs) dynamic. They recorded a four-song demo and started shopping it, and they spent the next year going door-to-door and being rejected by everybody. Uh, They finally ended up getting a deal with Easy Street Records, most likely because DeGarmo had a pre-existing arrangement with the owners of Easy Street, Kim and Diana Harris. Tate still wouldn't join the band, and they kept searching for a singer. Uh, Around this time, they were told that the mob name was already taken and they searched for a new name, uh, but they didn't have to look far. One of the songs they had recorded for the demo was called Queen of the Reich, which is a great song, by the way. I like it. I, I went back and found it after seeing that. Yeah, it's excellent. So they modified the spelling, added an umlaut to the Y for no specific reason, and the name uh, essentially means Queen of the Realm is what that means. The uh, They've joked several times that the umlaut over the Y has haunted them for years, uh, and I forget who it was that said it, but he said, we spent 11 years trying to explain how to pronounce our name. <laughs> it's it's like Motley Crue. Like, oh, look, two yeah. dots. Crue. Well, it must be, must be important because it's got dots over it. It's pronounced Motley Crue. <laughs> so in 83, they got some praise from Kerrang! magazine when they gave a glowing review to their demo tape. So their management team independently released the demo under their own 206 Records label. And it received quite a bit of airplay, sold a significant amount of copies for a small release. And based on that buzz, naturally, Tate decided to leave Myth and join the band full-time for the first time. Because, hey, they're getting press, might as well. Turns out anger warranted. Sure. (laughs) So their management team was able to convince Mavis Brody from EMI to come see a live performance. And at the end of the show, she offered them a ridiculous... $50,000 
15-year, seven-album contract with EMI. That is so bloated (laughs) and clearly was never going to happen and will never happen again. That's an album every two years. Yeah, plus a year of uh, time off somewhere right. in the middle. You just, you know, we're not going to do anything for an extra year. But there's no time <laughs> off because b- back then they, they were expected to go from album to tour, album to tour, album to tour. Oh, I didn't even tour. think about that. Yeah. They're on the hamster wheel now. 15 years, <laughs> seven late, seven record contract. That is insanity. <laughs> so the. I you know what one thing I could not find is immediately after signing they did re-release the uh, the EP yeah uh, the self-titled EP yes uh, and it actually went to number eighty one on the Billboard charts which is not anything to to you know shrug off right but one thing I could not find is does that count as one of the releases uh, yeah because it's it's technically their first record they yeah. went ahead and released it as the first record yeah so that one would technically count as one yeah. So uh, now, okay, now you're down to six albums in 15 years. Well, are you just you just splitting uh, hairs? Splitting aren't hairs, you? but still, that's that's one less. That's one less. <laughs> so, like you said, Pete, it's one more. The first record peaked at 81 on the Billboard charts. Uh, they toured the states with Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister, and even Dio for a while. That must have been fun. And then back into the studio they go, of course, because it's a hamster wheel. Uh, and they went in to record 1984's "The Warning." That record was. Pretty typical metal hard rock fare, and would do a little bit better than the first record, peaking at number 61 on the charts. I see a pattern. Mm-hmm. They would tour with Kiss and Maiden for that tour. And then in 86 came the album that would kind of start to shape their sound and indicate where they were headed. Uh, 1986's Rage for Order. Uh, they were starting to dabble in this more progressive metal sound, a little bit longer songs. Uh, more complex musical ideas. And while their sound was developing, their look was a reflection of the time. Very much. For sure. Teased out hair, makeup, looking for a glam look. (laughs) Uh, But it continued a slow, methodical climb up the chart at this album. This would peak at number 47. Uh, And it contains one of my favorite uh, Queensryche songs of all time, I Dream in Infrared, which is just a great song. Um, So, and after another... Busy tour with the ACDC, Bon Jovi, Ozzy, and Rat. They went back into the studio again to start work on their fourth album. Third album, fourth album. Um, this <laughs> album. Operation Mindcrime was released on May 3rd, 1988, and would become their biggest album to date. Kyle, do you have any of the sales particulars of which there aren't that many? No. Uh, certified gold by the RIA in 1989 at 500,000 units sold and platinum in 91 at 1 million plus units sold. Um, it did reach number 50 on the Billboard 200 in the U.S., which is, again, nothing to uh, uh, shrug your shoulders at. Um, it actually received a lot of high praise from critics and fans at the time, but it just did not do sales numbers. Right. That's, it sold some records, yeah. but but not any significant amount. I mean, and that's the thing, too, is it, it didn't really chart anywhere else either. It, right. You know, normally we're like, oh, it did. It, you reached number seven in, you know, Czechoslovakia. Ooh. You know, this those, didn't, those checks charts are they're hard to get on right that's but, rough uh, especially at this point so they were still part well, of the Soviet still, Union yeah, that was so. behind the iron curtain yeah they had to smuggle this in oh but, yeah uh, well especially with the subject matter right yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah but they uh there aren't a whole it didn't do super well at the time which is crazy because all in all Queensryche has actually sold over 20 million albums that worldwide nuts? and over 6 million in the US alone yeah so <laughs> and, and a lot of these sales numbers are are retconned 
to After Empire and Silent Lucidity. Yes. So people went back and bought Mind Crime yeah. because they're like, whoa. And then they're like, well, there's no Silent Lucidity on this record. Yeah, no yeah. shit. There isn't. So for this record, they decided a, a change of venue to record would, would be in order, as well as a change of producers. Uh, that second part is integral for this record, as they would get a chance to work with a producer that was responsible for assisting in the developing sound of one of their music heroes, this band we've just talked about, Rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, the producer they had selected for this record was Mr. Big himself, Peter Collins, who had produced the last two Rush records at this point, Power Windows and Hold Your Fire. Uh, we have released an album or an ep- episode about that album uh, very recently. So go to audiojudo.com and uh, check that one out. And even though Peter Collins never recorded Rush at the Morin Heights studio called Le Studio. Le Studio. He must have heard enough about it to want to record there because that is where this album would be recorded for the most part. And like we talked about on the Permanent Waves episode for Rush, that studio was an integral part of their sound for several records. And clearly, there was some sort of magic at that place. Yeah. Because here it is again, creating some magic for Queensryche. Well, it it honestly sounds like an amazingly magical studio to begin with. I mean, it's... It's, it's isolated. In it's in the middle of nowhere. Forest it's, of Quebec. It's right on the side of a lake. Yeah. And you can, the studio itself has giant glass windows. And if you open the curtains, you look out onto a giant lake. What a beautiful place to record. And unfortunately, it's, it's gone now. Yeah. So. I mean, that's. Yeah. That's sad. It is sad because it's, a, it was, there, there's actually, side note, if anyone's interested, there is a documentary Ooh. about uh, Le Studio that has uh, the guys in Rush from it talking about it before it was demolished because they were trying to convince them to buy it and kind of resurrect it. And, and Neil Peart was like, well, it had its time and special moments and we can't recapture what happened. So, you know, what the fate is, the fate is. And at that point, nature was already like reclaiming the area, like trees were moving in on it and stuff. So yeah. Please tell me it's called Le Documentary. It could be. Le Documentary. Le Documentary. On Le TV Station. (laughs) On Le TV Station. (laughs) That would be amazing if it was, but. So this record first came into my circle in the summer of 88 when my brother brought home the cassette. It was a matter of right place, right time, because I was probably about six to eight months away from entering a full-blown alternative phase oh. and was at the tail end of really caring about metal or hard rock for a long time. Uh, the previous summer had been the summer of ridiculously huge concerts and records. Appetite for Destruction had come out in 88, or I'm sorry, in 86, and it started to really catch fire in 87. Hysteria, an album we're going to talk about later tonight in a different episode, <laughs> was also released in 87. And also the self-titled White Snake record was huge in 87. So it meant... A lot of that stuff and a lot of huge concerts. And I was kind of feeling done with it at this point. Earlier in the year, had seen the release of Seventh Son of a Seventh Son by Iron Maiden, another high concept yeah. record. And I was just kind of hard rocked out. But this album had such a unique sound to it. First of all, it was incredibly ambitious. Uh, this wasn't just a concept record. It was more of a rock opera. And you could feel this being put on a stage at some point. The songs were catchy. Not poppy, but hooky, and you could sing along to them if you had a ridiculously high operatic voice, or at least try to. <laughs> or it's, pretend in the car with right? the volume and turned ha- up so you can't hear yourself. And have some amazing vibrato. Yeah. You know? uh, the artwork was graffiti-like, a little different, and so I was really bought in. Uh, that summer, I went and saw them and Def Leppard at the Palace of Auburn Hills just outside of Detroit uh, because I had already seen Leopard the year before. 
I was really there for Queensryche. And they didn't perform all of this record. Uh, they would do that on the next tour. Mm -hmm. But enough of it to be convinced that this record was super important to me, and it, it has remained so. And it's a really great record for cranking and driving. Yeah, oh, yeah. Just blasting. Have you heard uh, the quote from Jeff Tate talking about what inspired him to make this album? Uh, so I'm not sure. It turns out he was actually inspired by some friends of his who were part of the Quebec separatist movement. Oh, yeah. I mentioned that in the track by track. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No, but you could talk about it. you want me to do it. this quote right now? It's, yeah, sure. Uh, so it's from the uh, interview titled How We Made Operation Mindcrime uh, on Loudersound.com by Dave Ling, published March 31st, 2020. So it's fairly new. Jeff Tate said, quote, I wasn't part of their organization, but I was sort of guilty by association. I knew some people who were part of it all, and they talked a lot, especially over a few drinks. It's funny when you're a musician, people sometimes converse with you more freely than they would with other professions. I believe that. Right? But literally just hearing all these Quebec separatists <laughs> talk about this, he was like, Actually, that'd make a good story, good like a, a good like rock opera. Oh. And then oh, he made it. <laughs> you want to talk about the artwork? Oh, I got one more thing I got to oh, talk yeah, about before we do. get in there, too. Uh, slightly weirdly for an album, there is not only the recording personnel, there's a cast on this album. Oh, yeah. Because there are parts that are not necessarily musical parts. They're more like um, acting parts. Yep. Uh, so the cast consists of uh, Pamela Moore as Sister Mary, uh, Anthony Valentine as Dr. X, Debbie Wheeler as the nurse, Mike Snyder as the anchorman, Scott Matier as Father William, and the moronic monks of Morin Heights mm -hmm. as the choir. Which, That's just all of them in the studio yeah, yelling. Yeah, basically everybody that was around at the studio yep. was like, come on in the, you got to come in here. We just got to go. Uh, I was just cleaning the toilets. Yeah, get, get in, in here. Get in here. I thought that was uh, I thought that was fun though, and I felt it was worth a mention because you don't often see a cast listed on an album. Agreed. So I got one more question for you too before we. Well, let's talk about the cover first. We'll okay. come back to this. All right, Kyle has a question. Okay, yeah, I'll come back to it. It was kind of disappointing because I did a lot of looking and could not find a lot of details about the cover other than who designed it. Well, I found a few details. Did you? Mm -hmm. So it was done by Charles Wesley Griswold, the Grizz. What? I have a different. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm interested to see. Uh, well, go right, please on. continue. Yeah, well, they couldn't find a lot about him other well, than if you Google that, you'll find art director, Operation Mindcrime, and like three other Queens records, and that's it. So uh, it was my understanding this was done by Roger Gorman, who also did the cover to Operation Mindcrime 2. Yeah. This was one huh. of his early works. I did not see that at all. So so you go. Again, this is one of those things I, I spent a lot of time trying to dig this up. He's the principal designer for a company called Rainier Design, uh, based out of New York City now, but I believe they were originally based out of Rainier, Washington. That makes sense. His body of work is gigantic, though, and it includes a Grammy win for the best album package for David Bowie's album, Sound and Vision. Wow. Which is the one that has the cool, clear sleeve where you can see all the different Bowies yeah. through the transparency. Um, on his website, he for sure says that he designed the cover to the sequel to this album, sure. Operation Mindcrime 2. And he has a whole bunch of information about designing that. He also says in the notes for that, it was interesting to me to get called to come back and design a cover, uh, a sequel cover to an album all these years later. All right. I take that to mean he designed the original. Obviously, there might have been another art director involved, but I take that to mean he designed the original and then was called back to design the sequel cover. That might not be the case, though. I'm going to go with what you said. All right. 
the cover itself is a black and white image of a crowd with an image of a large head looming over them. Kind of picture the famous 1984 Apple Computers commercial, mm-hmm. and you will know exactly what we're talking talking about. Um, superimposed over the top of that is a weird yellow skull. Looks like it's in a vice connected by sound waves, I guess is a good way to describe it. Yeah. Um, inside the skull is the Tri-Reich, uh, the, the symbol for uh, uh, Queensryche. Yeah. Uh, and above it in a red and white box, it says uh, Queensryche Operation Minecraft. Yeah. Um, in order to achieve that interesting faded black and white effect, mm-hmm. they actually used a Xerox machine. So it looks kind of Xeroxed. He built a a collage out of all the images and then Xeroxed it several times to degrade the image. And that was the final result. And in fact, Roger Gorman talks in the little snippet on his webpage about how in order to recreate that uh, in what, 2013 was when Minecraft 2 came out. 2006, I believe. 2006. He said they couldn't find a Xerox machine that was such low quality any longer. Oh. So they tried all kinds of things to – they experimented with trying to find um, uh, ways to do it digitally and make it look the same. And they ended up finally finding a Xerox machine somewhere in like a, a warehouse or something. And they borrowed it for a few days and went and copied a bunch of shit. Thanks, technology. Right. But uh, yeah, and then the back just has a track listing and a series of red and white boxes. Yeah. Very simple, but incredibly effective. Yeah, it's striking. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorites. I love it. You had, you had I have nothing else about the cool. artwork because so, I couldn't find anything so else. So here's my question for you. Yeah. Do we want to tell people what the story is to this album before we go into the track by track? Or do we want to just tell the story as we're going through the track by track? No, I think we're going to leak it out as we go forward. All right, cool. All right. I will skip a whole section of my notes then, which is – no, I just – I wasn't sure how you were going to want to do it. So I put it all in my notes Ah. and then also put it in the track by track. Okay. So should we take a quick break? And we'll come back in uh, track by track. Sounds good. Don't Smother Nature is a one-stop shop for sustainable home goods. They do the research to compile all the best and most affordable options and group them into a convenient online location. With smooth navigation, helpful support, and easy returns and tracking, they make transitioning you and your home to be more Earth-friendly a simple and accessible process. They just had their grand opening, so browse their extensive catalog now at DontSmotherNature.com. That's DontSmotherNature.com. When you're smiling. Hey, you. It's me, Michael Bublé, for Bubbly Sparkling Water. Bubbly is crisp, light, and refreshing. It's got taste, and it's perfect for any occasion. Keep on smiling. Kind of like my voice, but in a can. No calories, no sweeteners, all smiles. The whole world smiles with you. Bubbly. Crack a smile. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, everybody had a good bathroom break? A I did. Bio break? As I were. did. Uh, I remember now. Oh, really? Yeah. Good. The first track on the record isn't technically a song at all. Right? It's just some voices and some sound effects that serve as the album opening and set a course for the record. You hear a TV in the background, and if you listen to what they're saying on the TV, you can kind of make out what's happening. TV is a news report that talks about the death of a priest, and the suspect is in the hospital. In walks a nurse with some lovely Foley work by Paul Northfield, yes. who was Peter Collins' engineer for the record. This whole album is littered with fantastic sound effects, and that is for sure 
one of the things that sells the record as a concept piece and very, very theatrical. Yeah. So let's set the table. In the bed is our protagonist, Nikki, who we will learn might be a good guy, might be a bad guy. Hard to say. Nurse walks in and says this. Sweet dreams, you bastard. I remember now. I remember how it started. I can't remember yesterday. I just remember doing what they told me. Told me. That la- <laughs> last part has always been a huge thing for Queensryche fans. Uh, the last line of what she said. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever that part is played live, the whole crowd yells, You bastard, <laughs> as loud as they can. Uh, so we are left to surmise that Nikki is in the hospital. Mm-hmm. He has just been given a less than pleasant injection from the nurse. And from her words, we are assuming she isn't quite happy with what he's done. But why? We will see. Well, he suddenly remembers and right? he starts spiraling back into that. It's a, it's a little backward slide. Right? So, so the part of the nurse, as you mentioned, was voiced by British actress uh, Debbie Wheeler, who has appeared in a number of BBC programs mm-hmm. uh, and the male voice uh, that you hear or you can't or you did hear in the clip is played by uh, lead singer Jeff Tate. Uh, but the scene is set at mm-hmm. this point. There's one other thing. Yeah, please. It was uh, to open this clip you, to set up the scene inside of a hospital. You hear some announcements in the background on like an overhead a PA. There's a Dr. Davis, Dr. Blair, Dr. J. Hamilton that all get called. Yeah. Have you ever heard that before? Many, many times. It is from a collection of, of sound, sound effects, effects from presumably somewhere in the 70s. It is one of those weird things. Nobody on the internet can pick which one. Nobody's been able to figure out what sound effects collection it's from. Really? I've heard it. If it's in Fletch. It's in Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> it's in Naughty by Nature's 1991 uh, self-titled album. It's in so many TV shows I've lost track yeah. on the list that it's I was looking at. Ton. It's in Fletch. It's yeah. in a bunch of other movies. Um if you happen to be a listener of this podcast and know exactly what sound effects collection that is from, email us, info at audiojudo.com. I want to know because there are so many web pages out there who's like, they list this and then there's a list of TV shows and things it was used in. It's, and then they're like, which one is it from? Nobody knows. It's so weird because I Fletch was released three years before this record. Mm-hmm. My brother and I used to watch that movie all the time. And then this album comes out. And then we don't make any connection until we saw Fletch again. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey, isn't that from the <laughs> he's it's the same thing. Wait a minute. But wait what? But, How did what, you get here? But, what are you doing? <laughs> so <laughs> Anarchy X. Anarchy X. So that short one minute opener leads into another one and a half minute instrumental that gives you some uh, tastes of things to come. Uh, you get some crowd noises. And if you have a keen ear, you can discern what Dr. X, the speaker at this rally, is saying. He says, do we have freedom? Do we have equality? This country's changing. It is no longer for all of the people. It is for some of the people. Hmm. Perhaps Dr. X is an anarchist. Hmm. But either way, this is a political record filled with religion, drugs, and sex. It already feels like it's going to be a good one. Right? Right? Those are like... All of my favorite things to talk about, (laughs) and not necessarily in that order either. All right, fair enough, fair enough. The song, while not technically sounding like an overture, I think kind of works like an overture. Yes, I would agree with that. Uh, It sounds like this. 
I love that the, the drumming in this is a very March style drumming. Yeah. Because it really adds to that feeling like they're starting a revolution. And uh, uh, the voice of uh, Dr. X, like we said earlier, is uh, Anthony Valentine. Randy, is this a, a British cousin of yours? Or perhaps more likely a British great uncle, maybe? Wow. Oh, that's oh. crap. That's crap. I was really hoping you'd be like, oh, actually, that's my mother's my mother's mother's brother. Oh, did or some you say shit. Anthony Valentine? Oh, hello. <laughs> so this- I've been in everything the BBC's ever made. <laughs> Pretty much. Been in everything. So this little bit of the record was written by guitarist Chris DeGarmo. Uh, and for me, he is really the unsung hero of this record. His fingerprints are all over it. Uh, but I'm going to talk about him and his story a little bit later. Revolution Calling is the next song. And here we get the political aspect of the story. Right. Lee, uh, as you mentioned, lead singer Jeff Tate was living in Canada during the mid 80s uh, and used to hang around with some unseemly fellows by way of a group of uh, Quebec separatists. They're some up, they're upset that Canada isn't French enough. Right. You got to make it more French, less Tim Hortons, more croissant. We oui. um, some of whom were engaged in acts of terrorism and bombings. Uh, and the frustration in the government stemmed from a lot of the conversations that he had with them. But this whole album is clearly an indictment of American politics. And at this point, the last seven years of the Reagan presidency, mm-hmm. which I can appreciate. So <laughs> Nikki's a bum. We get this. Well, he's a heroin right. addict. Just kind of floats around in his life. He's got no goals. He's addicted to drugs. One would assume heroin at this point. Uh, and he could be convinced to do just about anything without that much prodding. Except for murder, because the opening lines of the song, for a price I'd do about anything, except pull the trigger, for that I'd need a pretty good cause. And he finds it <gasps> on TV. Dr. X is the guy saying all the right things. The government sucks. The religious are just after your money. And here is the thing to give Nikki purpose, something to fight for. And it doesn't hurt that he may be able to provide him with the drugs that he craves all the time. And here's a bit of Revolution Calling right here. So this was the second of three singles from the record. It didn't really make a dent, but it is more or less the crux of the story, mm-hmm. right? He's fed up with the system. He is fairly hopeless. And along comes an eloquent speaker who provides him with hope and purpose. The purpose just happens to be uh, killing as it leads to the next song, uh, the title track of the album. Operation Mind Crime. Right. And now we find out what X is really about. It's not just a resistance group with a call for revolution. It is a secret underground group intent on destroying the current system by any means necessary, especially assassination. So using brainwashing techniques and a constant supply of heroin, X is able to manipulate and control his group of killers to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And Nikki is his number one. 
the song opens with a telephone ringing, Mickey answering, and the voice on the other line just saying, Mind crime. Mind crime. <laughs> this is clearly Nikki's activation word. I know something about those. <laughs> and the whole song lays out what he needs to do right here. Probably the best part of the song is the bass line provided by Eddie Jackson. Yes. Probably the most underrated musician in the band. Uh, he was born in Texas and has been, he's been with the band his whole career. Uh, he's just one of those guys that is absolutely devoted to the band that he's in. He is known as One Take Jackson. Ooh. Because he is renowned for just that. Because he only takes one of everything. Only taking one take. In the studio. He doesn't take like five mint, like, you know, the, the mint thing at the, the restaurant. Where like oh, no, just one. Mint. He just takes one. And if he's, he's at like 7-Eleven, he just takes a penny. Oh, that's nice. Just one, not like eight pennies. That's very nice of him. It's kind of rude. Uh, so, Nikki's got a job. Mm-hmm. Part of the new system. And he has his dope. And they bring it to him. All he has to do is wait around, go kill people. His life is fairly set. Right. Better than was how he was living before, you know. Seems pretty good. Uh, and this is the point of the record that I absolutely started to get bought into it. It lays out the story so well up till this point. And at 16 years old, I'm sold. Right? <laughs> so you're saying you fell right in step with the revolution. Right. Just by hearing the album. Sure. About how it's not good to fall in step with the revolution. Yes. Ah, okay, good to know. So not necessarily the heroin part. All right. Uh, but bringing down the system sounds like a great idea. So I grew up in a, uh, you know, conservative Republican household. But I knew very early on. That was not who I was. I grew up in the 80s, and Reagan made me puke. Really? And I was watching the economy crumble around me and affect the people that I loved. Have some jelly beans. You'll feel better. <laughs> Son of a bitch. It, it put the city that I grew up in into a death spiral that it still has not recovered from. Yeah. Uh, so I got it. Let's tear this shit down. I like totally, I'm like, yeah, revolution sounds fucking great. Let's do it. So I believe one of the best parts of how this record is put together is that it works out like one long piece of music. Yeah. Uh, there are breaks between songs and there are elements that tie them all together, phones ringing, other elements and stuff. Uh, and that is really where the help of producer Peter Collins and engineer Paul Northfield really kind of shone through. It wasn't just another rock record. It was an opera. And like the ending of this song bleeds into the next song. Uh, the song ends up with Nikki trying to get the crowd's attention and it leads into what I believe to be the best song on the record called Speak. One thing I do have to mention yes, about please. the song, because you already mentioned about uh, the bass. Yeah, yeah. Did you catch the little bass ditty in this song? That part? Yeah. yeah. Every time they mention that, they're talking about heroin. 
Oh, every time they mention every time they they're like the line is about his heroin addiction, and then there's that little oh. I did not catch that. I saw that online somewhere, and I was like, "Oh shit, that's awesome!" Well, now I got to go back and listen to it. Oh yeah, it happens every time they mention it. There's this. It's that's a cool little. It's well almost subliminal. Son of a bitch! Now I hear it. Now I got to go back and listen to it. Thanks a lot, Kyle. You're welcome, everybody. Uh, sorry, but we, you were saying Speak is the next song, and it's your favorite on this album? Yes, boom. I love this boom. song. Hey, hey, listen to me. Hey, hey, listen to me. It is certainly one of the harder rockers on the album, uh, but also just great lyrically. So Nicky's getting a big head right about now. He's going around doing all of his killing, bought into the cause, uh, even if he isn't exactly sure what the cause is yet. Uh, he doesn't care because power is awesome. Yeah. He's spouting all the stuff that X has burned into his brain. Government, bad. Religion, bad. We're going to burn the mother down. We're going to start over. And they're all speaking it now. It was quiet at first. The revolution, quiet at first, but it's getting louder. And they're speaking the word. And the word is revolution. This song is dominated by the guitar work of Michael Wilton and Chris DeGarmo. And here's what the two sound like in the song. subtle religious imagery in this song as well Mm -hmm. because i like that it's not just saying oh politicians are the problem it's saying politicians and religion are the problem and Uh, we need to deal with both of them yeah uh some of the ones that really stuck out to me the name of the song itself speak is obviously the way that religion spreads people talk about it you know before the written word that was the only way religion spread word uh the line i'm the new messiah death angel with a gun hey it's right here Right? My favorite line on the record. I'm the new Messiah, death angel with a gun. <laughs> Such a good line. Dangerous in my silence, deadly to my cause. Not only does that just fit great into the story, the lyrical rhythm to that yeah. is so good. It's so good. But you're absolutely right. You have more examples. I know you Yeah, do. I do. Speak to me. I feel your pain like a confessional. Yeah. Right? Uh, speak the word. Revolution. The word is all of us. Like a prayer or a hymn. The word is all of us. Right? Uh, seven years of power, a reference to the Bi- uh, a reference from the Bible, rather, uh, about the reign of the Antichrist, Ooh. who would reign for seven years. That's a deep one, but I like Ronald it. Wilson Reagan. <gasps> bum bum bum. You know, all all of his names have six letters in them. Ooh, that's six six six. six, six. Ronald Wilson Reagan. My. You don't remember hearing that? No. <laughs> oh, I heard that all the time. <laughs> He's the Antichrist. Right? Makes sense. Well. Well. <laughs> welcome to Death Valley Days. Uh, was he in Death Valley Days? I know. That's a line from Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, okay. That's a deep cut for some, somewhere out there. There's a person that just giggled when I said that. There's one other person that was like, ah, Oh. Me and that guy or girl. <laughs> Wait. Call me. 
<laughs> so Chris DeGarmo, this dude is so brilliant. Uh, he had been with the band since the beginning, and I loved his sound. He played in the band until 1998 and was responsible for their biggest hit, Silent Lucidity, hmm. uh, from the follow-up album to this one, Empire. Uh, but he was sick of it. He was burned out from the road. He was burned out from having to pick up the slack of the other members of the band who had st substance issues. Um, he had to negotiate their new contract in the 90s and had a lot of responsibilities that generally shouldn't fall to one guy in a five-member band. Uh, add to the mix that his marriage was the lone one to survive that period, and he was ready to step away. Hmm. So he left. And what did he do? He became a professional business airline pilot. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, he became a pilot. Huh. Such a sh strange career wow. move, but he's been very successful. Uh, he didn't leave music entirely. Uh, he guested on an Alice in Chains record in 2005 uh, and again in 2018. But I think most importantly to him, he formed a group called The Rue with his daughter, Riley DeGarmo, and they released an EP in 2015. Huh. Uh, and she still records under the pseudonym uh, Les Ailes. Um, and I just think that is such a great story because yeah. it could have gone sideways for him. But he's been able to find success and happiness outside of the music industry. And that's great for him. There's been off and on talk about reunions and stuff. But considering where the personnel headed after this, yeah, uh, I'd say that's probably not going to happen. More on that to come. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's great. I think that professional business airline pilot. Good for him. It, it, yeah, that's a. I was a guitarist how, for a while. Do you know how old he was when that happened? Just out of curiosity. I'd say he's probably in his 30s. That is because that is pilot is one of those those career options that I feel like you either do it, do it under 25 or you, you don't do it. You know what I mean? Just because it's a I don't know. I just feel like that's how it happens. You do it. You, you become a pilot under 25 and then you're a pilot forever. Not a lot of people go back in their 30s or 40s and they're like, yeah, I want to go be a pilot now. You're just laying around being like, I think I want to be a pilot. I think I want to fly planes. All business right, planes. Business planes. To do business with. But uh, spreading the disease. Oh. Right? That's the next song. So Nikki isn't the only one in the organization, though. Indeed. Uh, during his work, he meets a Catholic priest named Father William. I read in many online forums and stuff that they think Father William is a televangelist, but I'm not seeing this. They refer to him as Father. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, they refer to our next character as Sister Mary. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I will say when I first heard about this, the picture that formed in my head was a Catholic priest. Right. So, and there's a lot of clues as we will lay it out that that lean towards him being a Catholic priest. But Nikki is introduced to Mary, uh, who brings him his drugs at his apartment. She's uh, basically the courier. She is, uh, I guess, we can assume a teenager. Mm -hmm. That's what some people surmise. Again, I think she might be a little bit older. The song says she was 16. And on the run from home, but also fills in gaps. And I think there's a significant time passage there. Yeah. I don't think it's been like three years. I think it's been like five or 10, maybe. Uh, we know she was a runaway. We know she was a prostitute working live S&M shows in Times Square mm -hmm. uh, before that area would clean up its act in the 90s. Still kind of seedy, Times Square-y. Uh, and we find out more about her story in this section right here. Sister Mary now, eyes as cold as ice. He takes her once a week on the altar like a sacrifice. 
So it's advancing the story. It clearly does that, but it stands alone as an indictment of religion and sex being used simultaneously. So the disease being being spread is what? Probably from her, we would assume sort some sort of STD. I mean, that's that's on the surface. That's immediately what your mind right. goes to. Is, but it's, oh, yeah, obviously. it's the STD of society spread mm-hmm. by the commingling of those two institutions, right? The song breaks down in the second half and kind of lays it out. Religion and sex are power plays, manipulate the people for the money they pay, selling skin, selling God, the numbers look the same on their credit cards. And sometimes those are the same credit cards for both things. Mm -hmm. People that go to church every week to try and cleanse themselves from what they put on their credit cards the rest of the week. You know, a a subscription to OnlyFans here or Pornhub there, and they clean it up by a donation to Billy Graham. So this is a good time to announce our OnlyFans account, <laughs> which we're going to be opening. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's such hypocrisy in all of it. Uh, and this song, it was written in 1987. Yeah. And nothing's changed. It's just calling it out. And granted, this was the time around Jim Baker's fall from grace, mm-hmm. you know, uh, amongst others. So this was front and center. Heck, even Genesis wrote a song about it a few years later oh. called uh, Jesus, He Knows Me. <laughs> Um, but as far as the subject is concerned, particularly this one uh, is my favorite. I love this song. Hmm. But the mission. The mission. Kyle. Now all the players are set, right? Everybody's in place. Nikki begins to contemplate his position in the organization and the toll that it is having on him both physically and psychologically. And it's hard to tell exactly where in the timeline this particular song happens, but I, le- I believe it is right after the beginning of the next song, which is weird. See, I kind of, I I had that same problem. And then I got thinking about it. If we're going to assume that this story sort of happens as him having a flashback. So it starts with him in the hospital room. He remembers everything. He flashes back. Maybe this story is him reconnecting out of the flashback. Mm. So he sort of comes back to the, the reality of the hospital room for a few minutes and then thinks about this part of the story as a whole and then dives back into it. Okay. That's 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 the best way that I could come up with to to come up with a way to say okay this fits. I get that. But so in the, the next part is why I think people get confused. Uh, so Nikki's sitting in his apartment watching TV on the tube is a televangelist who's mm-hmm. asking for money and I think that's why some people think Father William is the televangelist because Nikki loads his gun and shoots the TV yeah. saying forgive me father for I have sinned. Which for a Catholic person is what you say at the beginning of confession or yeah. what is now called reconciliation. But I don't think they are the same guy. I just think Nikki is frustrated and bored and confused. Right? So there he sits and we get some insight into his situation. He's strung out. Sister Mary brings him his drugs and he's still pretty brainwashed at this point. And his mission, he believes, will save the world and he will be the bringer of the peace. And it's this part right here.
that vocal line. Damn, that vocal line is amazing. It's incredible. It gives us a chance to talk about lead singer Jeff Tate Ooh, there for you a go. second. Uh, first of all, one of the best voices in all of metal hard rock. I just love his voice. Very operatic uh, and strong. And when he drops into low octaves, like on Silent Lucidity, he dropped a little lower. It's, it can be a little malevolent or a little eerie. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. Uh, but of course, he is a front man with an ego to fit. Uh, he was born in West Germany to American parents, most likely a military kid. Uh, his family relocated to Tacoma, Washington when he was small. And like any sort of front man, he wanted a lot of control of the fate or the direction of the group, usually without the responsibility of actually making the things happen. <laughs> uh, in his case, he put a lot of his own family members in charge of things for the group. His wife, Susan, became the group's manager in 2005, and his stepdaughter became the president of the band's fan club hmm. at the same time. So from two, uh, 2009 to 2012, he and his wife secured more and more control of the band's interests. And as Michael Wilton, the guitarist, put it, we didn't have a voice in the band anymore. It was all run by the singer and his wife. So at a show... The singer and his wife. Uh, the singer. At a show in April, on April uh, 12th, 2012, the band, with the exclusion of Tate, fired his wife and stepdaughter from their respective roles. Two days later at a show in Brazil, there was a confrontation backstage that involved punches being thrown uh, between the drummer and Tate, also some spitting. Mm -hmm. Over the next three shows, Tate continued to, quote, misbehave, (laughs) as they put it. (laughs) <laughs> and they fired him from the band on June 5th. Hmm. So his wife and he immediately filed a lawsuit to continue to perform as Queensryche, while the other guys in the band also continued to perform as Queensryche. The lawsuit would drag on for two years. In the meantime, <laughs> I love this part. Both groups of musicians released new albums using the Queensryche name. So there are two albums released in 2013, one with Tate as the lead singer called Frequency Unknown, and one with a new lead singer called Queensrack. <laughs> Eventually, the lawsuit was settled, and the original members of the group were awarded the name, but Tate was awarded the sole ability to perform Operation Mind Crime, and he could refer to himself as the former lead singer of Queensrack. He would eventually rename his band Operation Mind Crime for a while, but is now the lead singer of a band called Sweet Oblivion. So that's pretty fun. Right. Isn't that great? Oh, it's wonderful when these bands just break apart like that. This Rock is the, and roll! It's the same thing that happened to Rat. <laughs> <laughs> Identical? Yeah, almost. Really? I mean, who can tour with the name Rat? I, I don't... I didn't, Yeah. Really? Steven... Uh, I can't Piercy remember. Piercy can't... I, he's not Rat? I can't remember, because it, it was the same type of thing, though, I believe, where the lead singer and the rest of the band split up, and then they were like, they were both touring as rat for a while and then it it took two or three years before they resolved that in court and now i don't remember who won one of them can tour under the name rat but one of them can release albums under the name rat or i don't know it was it got really change your name to like weasel or something right rat with one t one or three t rat with three t's he's got three t's he's got three t's (laughs) so getting back to the story yes nikki believes he has a holy mission but he's been Getting pretty close to this Mary chick. And X does not like that too much. Mm -hmm. Also, Mary has connections to Father William, and we can assume many other members of the underground. Because X can't have anyone usurping his control, and knowing Nikki is most likely falling for her, he does what any maniacal narcissist leader would do. 
he orders Nikki to kill them both. Of course. Which is what I feel Nikki was grappling with at the beginning of this song. That kind of, he knows what's what's coming. So the next song, Sweet Sister Mary. One thing I do have to point out before we go on to the next song. Please do. Uh, the candles in this song represent both the passage of time and how many people Nikki has killed. Oh, yes. So at the beginning, there's one candle, one lone candle burning in his room. Yes. And then by the end of the song, there's hundreds of candles in the room. Oh, in uh, 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 the mission? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because they make reference to that in Sweet Sister Mary. Yes. Yeah, there's a line that yeah. he says that. But yes, that, and that is a- But that, I, thought I, I thought I should point out before we go on to that, that the candles are in this song, and then they call back to it in Sweet And that's Sister actually Mary. a Catholic thing, too. Uh, votives. Yeah. You light, light a votive candle for, for the, the dead. For the dead, right? So- Yes, yeah, Sweet Sister Mary. First of all, Sweet Sister Mary, S-U-I-T-E, because this song is almost 11 minutes long. So, window goes down, and we witness Dr. X give Nikki his assignment. That was a, that was a nice window. Uh, he's not happy. So, X is played here, as you mentioned, by British actor Anthony Valentine, who had a very long career. He was in pretty much everything the BBC produced mm-hmm. for many years. Uh, he passed away a few years ago at the age of 76. And this is such a powerful song and it is really the climax of the whole story. There's a whole other side to go, but it's mostly clean up from here. He has to kill his wannabe girlfriend and her priest lover. Will he do it? Hard to say. Uh, just as an aside, here's another reason why I think William is Catholic and uh, the television or uh, televangelist stuff is just separate. They make reference to the altar, the priest, mm-hmm. the nun, the holy water, lighting candles as votives for people who have died. And then musically, let's just go ahead and throw a Gregorian chant sung in Latin to back up my claim. One of the things they do in the song that is so effective is at the very beginning, uh, when we hear, we get to hear Mary's voice for the first time. Nikki is singing about her and underneath the music and the singing, we get dialogue with Mary and Nikki. And it is so brilliant to not separate those two things. The song continues as the narrative continues underneath it. They used it like the soundtrack to a movie, but in reverse. Instead of music backing the dialogue in a scene, it's the other way around. And it's so wonderful. I remember being 16 and just being blown away by that little part. (laughs) Uh, And I can't think of another instance that has used spoken parts like that as underneath dialogue background to the song instead of the song taking a a background approach you know the dialogue does i think it's just brilliant um so story-wise uh we meet up with them after nikki has already killed father william and he's basically telling her that they need to get away and run and she seems pretty resigned to her fate and here's a section with both uh mary and nikki
So as you mentioned, the part of Mary is played by singer uh, Pamela Moore, mm-hmm. accomplished singer who has performed with many bands. She carved out a bit of a career for herself just playing this particular role. She toured with the band on the Empire Tour when they played the whole album in its entire, entirety. She also performed uh, a song with the band on their Queensryche album after Jeff, uh, Jeff Tate left. The music for this song is phenomenal, and it does work as a several-part song. So at this point, Nikki has decided not to kill her and wants to leave the cult and wants to either A, get out with Mary and live his life, or B, kill Dr. X and live his life. Uh, Nikki does say in the song, there is a, quote, one more candle left to light. Yeah. He lights candles for those he's killed, so I can only assume that his plan is to kill Dr. X. Uh, but X still has a pretty strong hold on him. You got you got some stuff there. No, I think you covered most of it for this. Uh, uh, yeah. Feel free to interject at any time. Yeah, well, I, you're covering everything uh, uh, quite well. Okay. Well, the needle <laughs> lies, Kyle. The needle does lie. So, uh, like you said, this is uh, Nikki beginning to confront Dr. X. And basically say, no, you're lying and and I'm done. I'm out. Right. Right. But X says, you know, you can't leave now. Yeah. Why? Because he's a hopeless addict. Without X, he wouldn't be able to feed his addiction. So Nikki tries to run away from the addiction, but he can't. As he runs through the city, running from his demons, he sees words written on the wall. And it's these words right here. song has some stellar guitar work again. it does the whole album has some stellar guitar work it's I mean, that dual guitar lead stuff that i love so much yeah. uh, that's why i was a huge fan of iron maiden uh and the dual guitar leads because there's so much you could do with harmony solos and stuff like that um the other guitarist we haven't talked about yet is the founder of the group michael wilton wilton was born in san francisco moved to seattle when he was very young and he studied jazz theory improv fabulous musician spent Almost all of his career with Queensryche. <laughs> Formed a couple of side projects called Soulbender and another called Ratchethead. But for the most part, he has centered himself around this band. So in the story, Nikki starts to head back towards where Mary was, even more confused and desperate than he was in the first place. Electric Requiem. Ooh. It's a little short interlude in which Nikki comes to find Mary dead. Mm-hmm. And he starts to believe that he may have killed her. Yes. Or he just doesn't remember. What we find out eventually in Operation Mindcrime 2, which we haven't talked about yet, uh, is that she killed herself when Dr. X threatened to kill Nikki. Mm-hmm. Here's a piece of Electric Requiem. You 
mentioned that uh, they they make this a little bit more explicit in uh, Operation Mindcrime 2. Yeah. They also, there's an extended scene of this in uh, Mindcrime at the Moor. At the Moor, yes. Which is a live performance of Operation Mindcrime done at the Moor Theater in Seattle uh, on October uh, in October of 2006. And in that, apparently, there's a little scene where Dr. X confronts Nikki, and he says, basically, you know, I, I'm going to kill Nikki if you don't take care of yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it fleshes out the story a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the song, go ahead. Uh, have you seen the DVD of it? The the more Operation at the uh, yeah. uh, Mind Crime at the Moor. Sorry. I've seen that. I yeah. also have Operation Live Crime upstairs on VHS. Oh, cool. That's actually pretty cool. But I, I tried to find a copy of it, and they were... I should, was going to buy it, and then I was like, eh, yeah. not right now. But it's pretty good. I've heard it's it, – all the reviews online said that it looks very interesting mm-hmm. and really good. So. Very theatrical. Yeah. It, kind of what you'd oh, expect. I got to yeah. check it out at some point. So this song was written by the drummer Scott Rockenfield. Uh, Rockenfield was uh, also born in the Seattle area and has also really only known Queensryche for his career. He has kind of dabbled here and there, even earned a Grammy nomination for a song that he wrote. Uh, unfortunately, he left the band in 2017 due to some family issues and has not returned. Current lead singer Todd LaTorre has said that he probably won't return. Uh, so that is a pretty shitty way to have your career end. Yeah. And also, LaTorre, who is the lead singer right now, mm-hmm. also plays drums in the studio for the new record. And he's better than Rockenfield. And that just has to suck. Wow. He's so much better. Am I like... Who's playing the drums on this? And I looked it up and I'm like, the singer? He's incredible. <laughs> yeah, he's really, really good. Breaking the silence? Breaking the silence. So uh, Nikki finally literally breaks. Yeah. He has a psychotic breakdown, loses it. He's running through the streets, screaming, calling out for Mary. Yeah, that sounds like this right here. The next two songs actually are the only real two pop songs on the record. Kind of operates as a pretty standard love song, and I do love the sound of this song, even though it's kind of derivative. Like it sounds a lot to, like Dokken to me at that particular yeah. moment. It's so weird. I'm like, is that a Dokken song? But I'm not sure if it does anything to really propel the story forward. But eh, it's a song. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a song. The end of the song is really all that it needed. So at the very end of the song, the police catch up to Nikki and begin to interrogate him. It's kind of unclear if he's being charged with the murder, with her murder or the priests, because trying to piece it together, it makes no sense in my head. It's one of the only really frustrating parts of the story. Mm-hmm. So Nikki leaves Mary after shooting the priest. He leaves and confronts X, leaves X, and I'm assuming X catches up to Mary and I guess she kills herself. But Nikki says in the song that her rosary beads were wrapped around her throat. Was she shot at all? Mm. Because... And if she wasn't, then why would the cops suspect him for that one? Because he's been shooting everybody. Yeah. Unless X tipped them off. Ah. 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 <laughs> I got it. So uh, I don't personally believe in love. I don't. Believe. Oh, that's sad. I know. Oh, but it's also the name of the next song. It's the one hit off the record. Yeah. 
peaked at number 41 in the Billboard chart, would earn the band a Grammy nomination mm-hmm. a full two years after the release of this record. Mm-hmm. Lost, sadly, to One by Metallica, which yeah. is also a good song, but I feel like this one's better. I like this song. Uh, it's a great song, but like before, it doesn't really do much for the story. So Nikki, who has now been arrested, and he's reflecting on his love for Mary, but he feels betrayed that she left him like every other person before him in his life, albeit by her own hands. Feeling a little sorry for himself at this point, he claims that he doesn't believe in love. He never did. He never will. Seems a bit extreme, but Nikki is a man of extremes. Uh, what the song does have, though, is a great guitar solo oh, yeah. that sounds like this. By both the guitarists. And the section that has it has one of my favorite lines of the record. No chance for contact. There's no raison d'etre. My only hope is one day I'll forget. If you, if you, if you can find a way to rhyme a French expression like that and work <laughs> it nicely into the lyrical structure of the song, you got to win in my book. <laughs> raison d'etre is French for reason to be. And based on what he's going through at the moment, it is perfectly placed and makes sense. It wasn't shoehorned in there. That yeah. makes sense. I love that. Well done, Jeff Tate. Right. You have you had something. No. Uh, you, bullshit. I'm sorry. I don't. All right. Are you waiting for 22? I am waiting for 22. It's an inner, a nice little instrumental piece. Uh, and it's kind of uh, uh, Nikki accepting the fact that he's fully descended into madness, I think. Could you find anything out about what the hell waiting for 22 means? No clue. Me either. I searched high and low. My my assumption was he's in room 22 in the asylum. Oh, I like that. Because the next one is obviously my empty room. Mm, waiting um, for 22. Yeah. What does it sound like? Oh, maybe like this. So, yeah. So that little piece played by Chris DeGarmo. Um, My Empty Room, though. It's another short little piece, yeah. only about a minute long. And we can assume that the empty room is a padded cell as he waits for uh, punishment for his crimes. Uh, all he keeps seeing is Mary's dead body. And he doesn't want to face the crimes or face life without her. It's kind of a mess right now. Uh, and the short piece sounds like this. And all my dreams are crimes. And facing them
ending. Right, the little echo. Oh, yeah. And where does he look? Looks into the eyes of a stranger. It's a great finishing piece. Right. Brings the whole story together. Uh, there are a few loose ends. But uh, Nikki is unable to recognize the person that he's become. The drugs, the brainwashing, it has changed who he is. And the person looking back at him is a stranger to him. Uh, Chris DeGarmo did an interview years ago about the storyline, and he said this about the end. Charged with several murders, Nikki is committed to state hospital to overcome his addiction. Awaiting trial, he suffers insomnia and is delirious. Searching through his past, he tries to find reasons for his actions and his weaknesses. Staring into the mirror, he sees a stranger. Hmm. Culminates it right there, right? Right. Throughout this song, there are such great, clever uses of of the songs that have already uh, appeared previous to this, like a reverse overture. Um, And the song itself sounds a bit like this, or completely like this. single of this one actually reached number 35 on the U.S. mainstream rock chart, number 59 on the U.K. singles chart, uh, along with Silent Lucidity Mm -hmm. from the next album and uh, uh, Don't Believe in Love from this, I Don't Believe in Love from this album. Probably the three Queensryche uh, songs that are played on the radio. Yeah, I would say that. Uh, On top of that, as of 2021, this is their most played live song ever at 1,470 times. Holy crap. Played live, according to Setlist FM. They had that many gigs? Uh, that, again, that's according to some you know website called Setlist FM. I have no clue how true that is. I have no way it's to actually verify pretty accurate. that. But you start adding up those numbers and you're like, oh, yeah, if they did you know, even 25 or 30 concerts a year, those numbers start to add up. That's true. And I'm sure this was one of the most requested songs from when the album came out until they stopped touring. So I would, uh, I would say that. So the, the song culminates with all the sounds of the previous songs together with one loud group in unison yelling revolution, like at the beginning of the album at the very end. I remember now from the beginning repeats and we were back in the hospital room from the beginning. It's such a great end because it's yeah. like a loop. Yeah. It's an endless loop. So did X get away with it? What happened to Nikki? It's left with no answers. And that's what I love so much about it. No real closure <laughs> because that's more like life than a nice tidy ending. Yeah. And for 15 years, that's the way it stayed. But money is a powerful thing <laughs> even when your original album was partly about how money corrupts. So in April 2006, the band released Operation Mindcrime 2, and it worked. The album premiered at number 14, sold them a bunch of records and a bunch of concert tickets. And as for the album itself, it's okay. It's not horrible. But imagine saying to the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's was great. 
It's now 15 years later. Can you do another one just like it? <laughs> You're trying to catch lightning in a bottle twice. And while some of the songs are pretty good, which they are, it just seems like a reach in 2006. I'm not going to spoil how the story ends in case someone out there wants to experience it for themselves. I just, I just wish they would have left it alone and walked away. But money yeah. is a powerful thing. Right. Uh, and big that, motivator. Yeah, big, huge motivator. So, and that's uh, that is Operation Mindcrime by Queensryche, one of my favorite records. Mindcrime. Uh, especially in the heavy metal hard rock genre. Um, get a hold of us and let us know what you think about it. You can get a hold of us at uh, info at audiojudo.com if you want to email us. Yeah, you got uh, it. At audiojudo on uh, Twitter, at audio underscore judo on Instagram. Apparently, we don't check that enough, so we're going to start checking that a little bit more often. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash audio judo uh, if you want to message us on there. Yeah. Um, we have episodes coming up about Def Leppard, like mm-hmm. shortly after this. Right. Uh, the Doobie Brothers, mm-hmm. Jethro Tull, mm-hmm. and many, many more. So keep checking in. Uh, until then, everybody, bye-bye. We'll see all you next time. Down, down, down. <laughs> <laughs> of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.